If you would, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. Chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, I'll be reading verses 7 through 14. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today. And forever, do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. For it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. And therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant gospel to our hearts, our souls, our walk, our conduct until we die to the glory of his name. Amen. Father, help us see this beauty, which is your son. The beauty, which is the good news for all wretched sinners. The only hope of eternal and everlasting joy in you, the only God, the creator of heaven and earth. Work through your word and do this in us to the glory of your name. Amen. I have to admit that reading through this paragraph we just read was not obvious of what he's doing to me, or in it for us. Over the first two, three, four readings, and continue to read and slow down and to sketch it out on a piece of paper, arcing what seemed to be disjointed, started to see a continuity. What I mean is this, here's a short blast of what he says to them 2,000 years ago and thus to us today. Remember, consider, Jesus, the gospel does not change, therefore don't be led astray with strange, false doctrines. You see, no matter what those who are in your ears are saying, we have an altar where we go to feed and eat. It's outside the camp and outside of Jerusalem. In other words, the theme through this whole passage is watch out for false teaching. False doctrine. In a nutshell, the the way to avoid being duped by false teaching, he says, look at 
Remember way back those original leaders that you had who have now gone to be with Jesus? Look how they, they walked and how they lived and imitate their faith. Or in other words, hold firmly to the centrality that they demonstrated to you of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of His sacrificial, substitutionary, wrath-bearing death where He secured your salvation by grace alone. Nothing added to it. The author warns in verse 9, look at it. Do not be led away by diverse and strange or foreign teachings. That warning has been one of the main dishes on the table of God's people since the beginning of the gospel being preached. Paul fought false teachings within the church throughout his life and ministry. And we live in a day when evangelicalism, we evangelical Christians as a whole, minimize the importance of sound doctrine. I mean, there's a mantra within the church over the last 50 or 60 years and spouted by many leaders in the church that speak negatively of doctrine, saying, well, doctrine divides people. Which means, just, just flesh it out, what does that mean? It means, in other words, the more you try to be clear about who Jesus is, the less loving you are. Because Christianity is about relationship juxtaposed to over against being clear about what Christianity is. See, when you think about it, one of the stupidest nonsensical statements is this. It is about relationship, not Doctrine. Why is that stupid? Because that statement right there is their doctrine. <laughs> it's, it's contradictory. Within the greater culture in which we all live, which always will filter into the church unless the doors are barred, is the idea of drinking the poison that reduces everything down to the person's own preference. I like vanilla ice cream. I think it's the best. You like chocolate ice cream. You think it's the best. And when it comes to ice cream, it's true. Neither one of us is right or wrong because those are statements about personal taste. But when it filters over into say that as long as you just love Jesus, you believe in Jesus, right? Okay, stop, don't go further. Please don't, because if, if you start to move and say what you mean by that and who Jesus is and what he actually did and the implications of that, well then you're gonna divide Christians. Because definitions do and will always divide. But the mantra is doctrine and definitions of who Christ is and what Christianity is divides, but love edifies. So let's stay away from clarity. Definitions. Doesn't, doesn't work. Why, because of the contradiction, for one, that I just showed you, but... The New Testament itself is filled with warnings 
about false doctrine, strange, foreign teachings creeping into the church. Jesus warned this way in Matthew 7, 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, meaning in pastoral garments as fellow Christians, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Paul warned the Ephesian Elders, remember in Acts chapter 20, gather all the pastors, all the teachers, the leaders, the elders in the whole region of Asia Minor. And he gave to them his last speech and he warned them to guard against savage, it's his language, wolves, false teachers. Then he looked at them and he said this, quote, and from among you guys. Right here in front of me, from among your own selves, will arise some of you down the road speaking twisted things in order to draw away people after themselves. And in the Apostle Paul's angriest letter, to all those churches in the region of Galatia, he opened it with these words. I am astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. And you're turning to a different gospel. No, no, not that there is another one. Oh, they still say Jesus is the way. But there are some who trouble you, and they want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you another gospel than the one we've already preached to you, let him be damned. And in the book of Colossians, Jesus, I mean, Paul warned about philosophies filtering into the church. He warned about those teachers who impose rules about food and, and drink and religious festivals. In his pastoral epistles, Paul constantly warns the pastors, preach sound doctrine, healthy doctrine, not unhealthy doctrine. Fight against False doctrine. And so our writer to the Hebrews, he says this in verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange or foreign teachings. Because it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. Okay, contextually, what's happening there? What does he mean? Well, what we have seen throughout the whole letter, and these are Jewish Christians feeling ostracized from the larger Jewish community where they live. It's their culture and being pressured to go back to Jewish regulations. Like about what are clean foods to eat, or what are unclean foods, or how do you wash before you eat? Or maybe meaning the sacrificial system, such as once you Bring your offering to the temple. The temple's still standing at the writing of this letter. It's before A.D. 70, before it was destroyed. Then you, you take, the priests get some to take to their homes and eat. And, and you take and you eat the animal. You eat the lamb. Or you eat the goat. And so that whole system... The partaking of it, which they're pushing back on them, may be exactly what he's referring to. 
And when he uses the present tense here in the original, in the Greek, with that imperative, do not be led astray, it indicates that some are already being deceived by this teaching. And they needed to stop. Or, so in other words, remember what Paul said in chapter 9. So what is he referring to? Probably something like this. Verses 9 to 10 of Hebrews 9. Gifts and sacrifices are offered there in the temple that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. But they deal only with food and drink and various washings. Regulations for the body imposed by God in Moses until the time of reformation. The time of what they pointed to comes, which is Jesus Christ. Remember in the first century, there was a group of Christians within the Christian church that we call and it's a good term for them, Judaizers, who went after Paul would plant churches and Barnabas, they would then come in after they leave later and say, let, let, let's clean up a little bit of that they left out. And they would tell the Gentiles that unless you start keeping kosher diet from Leviticus about what you eat and how you prepare what you eat, He's, they would say, that's essential for you to remain strong in faith, in the faith of Jesus. And ultimately, if you refuse, you will not be saved. And Paul lets us know, God in his sovereignty had all of that happen so that the gospel becomes much more clear in that context of false teachings like that which are boiled down to this. In any age, in whatever way, whether within Judaism related to it or some other religion or some other culture, if you add to your faith doings, anything that you do, that you deem because I do that, that's why I'll be saved. Or, because I do that, that's how I will not lose my salvation. But Paul, the gospel, and the New Testament is clear that we are saved by grace alone, apart from any works. And that's why the writer says here, don't be led astray by all these diverse and strange teachings because it's good for the heart to be strengthened by grace. Not by foods which have not benefited those who are devoted to them. Eat grace, Christian. Greet grace alone, not works of religion, like eating particular foods. Because the doctrine that teaches you must keep the Old Testament food laws benefits no one. Satan has infiltrated the church with false teachers from the beginning over the last 20 centuries it will always be true until Jesus returns and here it's the infiltration of false teachers with their false teaching that dilutes the gospel dilutes the grace alone that is in Jesus Christ. Okay, having said that, see, if we Christians today 
buy into the modern idea that doctrinal truth is really just a personal preference. Define God as you want, or define Christ as you want, or define divine election, or sanctification, or regeneration. Come, let's, let's not be real clear about what we mean by grace. If you buy into that, then you are becoming like the Hebrew church in danger of being led away by false, strange teachings. To deny the importance of biblical sentences in the Bible, in their context, to deny any of it, that's what opens us up to be prime targets of doctrines, of demons, the way Paul puts it. How else do you think all of those quote, end quote, Christian self-help books have infiltrated Christianity in bookstores over the last numbers of decades? How else do you think pop psychology, Christianized, has permeated the shelves in the Christian bookstores? It starts by moving away from the constant exposition of the Scripture, away from clear, defined, biblical categories and teachings and biblical doctrine. And one of the means to keeping yourselves free from false teaching, he says in the text, look at the lives of those who brought the true gospel to you at the beginning. They're dead now. They went to be with Jesus. Consider how they lived. Consider what they did. Consider whether they went to the temple or not. Consider whether they ate bacon or not. Consider their morality and life and love. Think about it. And then, he doesn't say, do what they did. He says, then practice their faith. What they believed. Look at it. Verse 7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, literally, the ESV can be a little deceptive because it sounds like two imperatives, but really, because the first, it's a participle. In other words, by you considering their conduct, their way of life, by that, Imitate their faith. And his point is, it's their faith in Christ and the true gospel that produced their conduct, the way they lived. The author wants us to see that faith in Christ, in grace alone, is the basis for how you live. Go on living the Christian life. And notice he says this key thing about those former leaders they had. Quote, they spoke to you the word of God. They were faithful. God's written word is the only source for sound teaching. If the readers of the letter originally understood what the writer had already said through these first 11 chapters of this epistle, then they would not be entertaining religious, legalistic, ritualistic teachings that say your Performance now, Christian, is what gives you spiritual strength. 
They wouldn't be listening to it if they got the gospel in their heart clear. And we live in a day when too few pastors devote themselves to preaching and unfolding the black marks on the page of Scripture. Sentence by sentence, paragraph by paragraph, teaching what the Bible gives in the next paragraph. Because there's this fear. If, if I devote myself to a no-holds-barred unfolding of God's Word as it comes to me off the page of Scripture, well, the next section might be Romans chapter 9. And then there's the fear. If you do that, it'll shrink the numbers of people that come to the church. Especially in our day, because the mantra is because of these phones we all have and social media, it has limited the attention span more than any time in history. So therefore, let's cater to it. And you can't really define much because people don't have the attention span to follow the arguments that are in the Bible. But if one's committed to say, let's just preach it, it may chase people away. So what has happened is many evangelical churches for decades, it's actually taught in seminaries like my seminary I went to and Bible college like my Bible college I went to. You cannot give straight forward exposition of text because your whole goal is to get those who don't like Jesus, who are the unchurched, to like Sunday morning church service. So they fear also that if you say what the Bible says in the next passage, without you didn't create what the topic is, it did. And if you actually said it clearly, what it says on the page, well then you may offend many Christians, and they'll go somewhere else. Because the goal of doing church is to consider what the customer wants. And as the unchurched, what they want as those who are darkened in their sin and understanding. Give the seeker what they want. And that's why topical series of sermons have been the main food. Because that way the leader can choose what the topics are. They want to know how to have a better marriage. Be a better husband. Be a better father or mother. How to raise your kids. You, they, there are people that, oh, we have kids now. We never cared about who God was or anything, but they're five years old. Maybe we should be churchgoers so we can at least put our kids in a Sunday school. They teach good morals there. The writer is saying that the doctrine of God's grace is what is and has been since he wrote this one of the central tenets of Christianity that has been and will be attacked. The error of the Judaizers whom Paul so angrily confronted throughout his ministry, and like in the book of Galatians, it was their teaching, let's add to our faith in Jesus, his death and resurrection, you must add circumcision, kosher diet, food laws, festivals. And he's saying there's never, ever a time where you move from trust in God's grace to working for God. To doing external 
religious rituals in order to stay in God's good standing. He says to them, eat grace. The grace of the message of the gospel. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods. <clears throat> to add alongside of faith in God's grace anything. To say, you must do this. You must do that. You must do the other thing. It is, according to this writer and according to the Apostle Paul, it is ultimately to reject Jesus. God's grace, His grace alone, is the means for our living since we became believers in Jesus. Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 11, verses 5 to 6. So also, at the present time, there's a remnant of Jews in the context here. They're chosen, a small portion of them, chosen by grace. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. And eat grace. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, Christians, do you understand what happened to you? He chose us. In Him, before the foundation of the world, in order that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And He did it unto, unto the praise of His Glorious grace. But I believed. And my sibling didn't. Or my best friend didn't. Can I get some credit for my doing? Paul goes on in Ephesians 2 and says, Absolutely not. For by grace you have been saved through your faith. Yeah. And this, and that's in a neuter, referring back to the two feminine, which would never happen. The whole point is to grab both of those, the grace and the faith. And that whole thing is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. It's not a result of works so that no one may boast. All of our salvation, including our faith, is God's gift. It is His grace. And so the writer is saying to us, daily eat of grace. And that's why the writer feeds that now into verse 10. We have an altar... Okay, don't picture like when I was raised as a Roman Catholic at the altar, though they do that sacrificial stuff, which is Galatianism. It, 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 is, it is a diluting and a polluting of the true gospel of Christ. But when you see altar, you see, you see blood and animals. And then you're going to eat and sustain yourself, right? We eat meat, right? And so did they. But he says, we have an altar, a place to eat. From which those who serve in the tent, the tabernacle, or meaning the temple there in Jerusalem, they don't have a right to eat at our altar. The essence 
of Christianity centers on the grace of God purchased in the bloody sacrificial death of Jesus from that little town of Nazareth. That's why he goes on in verses 11 and 12. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place. It's not the body, but the blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin. The bodies are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. He's repeating the truth that he's been unfolding throughout this letter. That Jesus is infinitely superior to the Mosaic Jewish sacrificial system. Because he was the reason for it. It was all a pointer to him. And He has come. And He has fulfilled it. That's the Gospel. Now, probably what's happening, and he, the writer knows it and why he words it this way, he, 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 give a guess. That the unbelieving in Jesus, Jews that they're feeling pressure from, were saying stuff to them. Something like, well, we still have an altar in the temple where we offer sacrifices. But you Jesus followers, you don't have an altar. Well, look at our robust religion. So, so how can you think that Christianity is better than Judaism? Look at our temple. When you, when you don't even have such a central religious observance as we do with all of our sacrifices and priesthood on an altar. And here's his answer. We have an altar. Then in verse 11, he uses the analogy from the Jewish sin offering. That's what he's doing here, particularly in the Day of Atonement. He's not talking about the normal, the regular, the ongoing sacrifices where you will eat of its meat. And, okay, you don't waste the meat, but he's talking on the Day of Atonement when it came to the sin offering. Moses is clear that is not to be eaten. Blood is taken, sprinkled on the mercy seat, and the body is taken outside the camp to be burned. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. And then the writer, he applies that to Jesus. So, there you go. Dia. So, therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate of Jerusalem, where the temple was, in order to sanctify the people through His own blood. That sanctification, setting, which means set apart at its core, it means what He has done is cleansed us from sin. At the time of our salvation, just like he already said in chapter 10. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In other words, Jesus' 
death as the substitute, the only sinless human being ever who happens to be the creator of the universe. Always divine and took to himself a distinct nature to his person. The only sinless human being was slaughtered by God the Father on the cross where he poured out his just wrath. And Jesus fulfilled all of the Mosaic sacrificial system. And so as those Jewish priests used to feed on some of the sacrifices, he says, we, do you understand whether you're a Jew or a non-Jew, have you come to Jesus? We constantly, in a spiritual way, by the Holy Spirit, feed upon the grace of God by faith. Those who are ongoingly, while he's writing, still offering animal sacrifices, they have no right to eat at the altar of Jesus until they abandon those temple sacrifices and trust in Jesus alone. That's our passage. And it all points to this application for every soul in this room. Jesus demands our exclusive allegiance. That's why he says, therefore, in verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach. Hear Jesus being reproached in those last hours of his life. Hear the rejection of Gentiles and Jews. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. He saved others. He can't save Himself. Hell, King of the Jews, His blood's coming down from the thorns on His head and they smack it. Again. There's only one Savior and that's Him. Let us go outside the camp and bear in our own lives the rejection and the reproach, the disapproval that he endured. To the original readers, the message was clear. You Jewish Christians must leave Judaism to follow Jesus Christ. You cannot hang on to your religiosity, religious works, and just add them to faith in Jesus. You must turn exclusively to Jesus, even if it means suffering reproach. And throughout all the centuries since then, the same truth stands. You must drop the idea that how good I am or how well I re practice religious rituals, that's the reason I'm acceptable to God. It's got to go. Unregenerate souls, they hate this one true 
gospel. They hate it. And we all hated it before God regenerated us. That's why Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, for the word of the cross, that there's the bloody altar, Jesus. The word of the cross. Oh, and tr- you know, don't trust me, you know it, just read him. Paul unfolds what that means. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, the unregenerate. But to us who are being saved, that very word of the cross is the power of God. You see, religiosity has understood. Paul accuses the Judaizers of doing this very thing, removing the offense of the cross, by the way. People will not be offended if you remove the altar of sacrifice, the bloody cross of Jesus. If you remove that from Christianity, they're happy. It's a good moral system. It creates society. Look at its part it's played in Western civilization over the last 2,000 years. Good, good, good. And they'll just freely talk to one of my, I call him a mentor in many areas. But I don't throw away my faith in Jesus. And so they'll say, Dennis Prager, we worship the same God. Already in that person's mind, the gospel's been diluted. We don't worship the same God. But the unregenerate heart would love a Christianity that basically its deepest saying is WWJD. That's a good thing. He's a great guy, moral, sinless. Let me do what Jesus would do and let's be good Christians. With the offense of the cross having been removed. The name of Jesus doesn't get removed. They like that. See, the cross, it confronts and it offends human pride. It confronts our man-made arrogant religions. And without the miracle of the call upon the heart. We all as sinners don't want to hear about the necessity of Jesus' horrific, brutal death, shed blood, where our Creator poured out His anger and wrath that He had toward me. Him as the substitutionary sacrifice. The only way to divert God's judgment. But without Jesus' blood, without the cross, not the cross in the temple in Jerusalem, but it was deliberately in God's sovereign, predestinated plan outside the gate of Jerusalem, about 300 yards over there on a small hill called Golgotha. Without it, outside of our own religious righteousness, there's no salvation without that altar. Read it again, verses 13 and 14. Therefore, let us go to Jesus outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Okay, 
Many Christians through every century know what that means in very deep ways that many of us don't have a clue yet. But we might in this country more and more. Bear the reproach he endured. Verse 14. For here we have no lasting city of Jerusalem where the temple is. But we seek the city that is to come. And so the whole rub is this. Sound, clear, defining doctrine always centers on Jesus Christ. Come back there next week. It's the same. Nothing changes. No matter what era or what culture the gospel goes into, it's the same yesterday, today, and forever. That sound doctrine delights in grace. And it resists eating legalism. Sound doctrine exalts Christ. It loves the altar and the bloody sacrifice of Christ. And it feeds on His death for our sins. And it does all of this because... It's right there in verse 14. That's what the word for means. Because here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. And so, this morning for all of us who are baptized Christians, that means for those of us who have left legalism and bear the rejection of our Lord Jesus together, we commune with each other over eating grace. Signified. By eating the bread and drinking His cup, we eat at the altar of grace. At the altar of the old rugged cross outside the city of works religion. Let's pray as we continue to prepare our hearts to eat and drink. Father, you are good. As Paul declared, it's one of the centerpieces in my mind of all the scripture. You who did not spare your own son, but delivered him up on the altar. How is it that you shall not also by him give us all things to endure? We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.